Good morning, and uh, welcome. Turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And I want to read from verse 4 down to the end of the chapter. Genesis 2. So it's probably on page 2. So <laughs> Whatever Bible you have, let's uh, hear God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the, bre- the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name, its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, again, we pray your help to understand it. I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So we're looking at the question of uh, covenant theology in these uh, these weeks. And um, uh, you may wonder what that is. some of you have got it by now, but so, you know, covenant is a, it's an unfamiliar word perhaps to some of us, and theology is a scary academic word to others, and uh, 
but it's, it's all about how God relates to human beings. Uh, he relates in such a way that he, uh, how he relates, relates in such a way that he brings to people uh, blessing and reward. So God forms this relationship to bring blessing and rewards to mankind. And we have seen so far that uh, God is our creator. So he is far above us as creator. He is quite distinct from creation. And uh, he is, uh, his being is other than us. Uh, we are his creatures. Uh, yes, made in his image. But in order for God the creator to, uh, to relate to creatures, somehow God has got to come down to us. And... Uh, uh, creatures, you see, are unable by themselves to reach up to God. Um, because he, his order of being, if you like, is so different from us that it's impossible, actually, for us to do that. It's impossible for us to reach up to God. So God comes down by... Voluntary condescension. That's how our confession of faith puts it. He voluntarily condescends. He comes down. Descends to be with us, if you like. Voluntary condescension. Such an important uh, term. And that's just for him as creator dealing with creatures. We haven't talked about sin yet. Uh, But because he is creator, he does it that way. And in doing that, uh, voluntarily condescending to come down to us, he relates to human beings by way of covenant. And we looked at that last week. Uh, Just in general terms, we looked at the whole notion of covenant. Uh, And we we looked at what we meant by covenants. You know, when you have a covenant, uh, it's, it's between two parties. And uh, God is the initiator of that relationship, so God makes it happen. He want, he's the one that starts it. And then God makes promises uh, to us about how he's going to bless his people. He doesn't have to do that, but he does. He makes promises to bless. Then he places requirements on people, on, on the, the other side of the covenant relationship. Uh, after all, as creatures, we owe him our obedience Because we're creatures made in his image. And there are penalties for failing to keep those requirements. So those four elements of uh, a covenant relationship. uh, The parties involved, the promises of God, the requirements on people, and the penalties for failing to keep that covenant. Uh, So those are the component parts of the general idea of covenant. And we thought about that. Last week, what we're going to do now is look at how this works out in the history of human beings. Um, now, there are many ways that you can divide up history, uh, but as far as God's covenant making is concerned in history, the key dividing point is the fall of man. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that day. That Adam first ate of the fruit of the tree that he was forbidden to eat of. So, if you look at verse uh, 
16 and 17, there's that uh, command given. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall, uh, day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so the, the command is given. But then if you look ahead to chapter six, uh, 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, so she took of the fruit and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So there you have in verse 6 the fall of man. That mankind disobeyed the command of God. The first sin. And before that moment there was no sin. But now there is sin. And not surprisingly, therefore, there are two covenantal arrangements. One covenant is made before the fall, and another covenant made after the fall. The pre-fall covenant God makes with Adam, often called the covenant of works. Uh, Personally, I'm not too happy with that terminology, but it's there in our confession of faith. And if you understand it correctly, then you can make sense of it. Uh, But it may lead you in the wrong direction if you don't understand it properly. Covenant of works. And the post-fall covenant, the covenant after the fall, is what we might call the covenant of grace, actually made through Jesus Christ. And we'll come to that next week. The covenant of grace. But... uh, Today, I want us to look at this uh, covenant of works. The covenant that God made with Adam before the fall. And in order to kind of orientate ourselves correctly, what I want to do, first of all, is, is to, to really work on this idea of God's voluntary condescension. How he, he comes down and the w- amazing ways that he does that. In order to set the scene for this covenant. And then we'll talk about the covenant towards the end. Um, so I'm building a picture to start with of how beautiful it was for Adam and Eve to be in this relationship to God. And how they find that there is a beautiful expectation of even more to come. Beyond the Garden of Eden. Some people think that we're in the business of getting back to Eden. Actually, God has plans beyond Eden. Far beyond Eden. And Eden's wonderful in itself, but there's much more to come. We'll see how that is in a moment. But there's also a very important restriction which we just read in verses 16 and 17. And so we're going to look at the... uh, uh, going to build this picture. So the first thing to notice with us, with you, is just think about this garden of God that God has established So at the start of chapter 2, God has created the heavens and the earth. And so far, the the land is described as a barren place. Verse 5, there's no bush of the field as yet in the land, and no small plant of the field has yet sprung up. For God did not cause it to rain. Uh, There's nothing there. There's no rain yet. Um, There's just a mist that's covering the earth in verse 6. So so nothing much has happened come to fruition yet. But it's into this setting that God having, after forming man and breathing life into him, that the Lord God sets about the work of planting this garden in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden 
in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now what's the significance of the Garden of Eden? One of the things we have to realize about this story is it is full of symbolic significance. Uh, what do I mean? Uh, what I mean is, I'm not saying it's a mythical story, a symbolic story. I'm saying it's a real story. But the things that God has put into the garden have significance far beyond themselves. So these are real things, but God is indicating something in the elements that are there. So God didn't just make a nice garden to look at. It's actually a place much richer than that. And Ezekiel came several hundred years before Christ. Ezekiel 28 describes the... uh, Eden as the garden of God. It's God's garden. A place, therefore, of fellowship with God. A place that we can know God, that God comes to. And that human beings can be in relationship to God with. And there's a number of things that kind of emphasize this relational aspect of the garden. One linguistic feature is that in chapter 2, as we move from chapter 1 into chapter 2, God's name appears. So in chapter 1, it's just Elohim, it's God. And in chapter 2, it's now Yahweh Elohim. Uh, God's name and what he is, God. So it's his covenant name. And, you know, when you get to know somebody's name, it's kind of like getting to know someone, isn't it? So here we see a God who makes himself known to Adam and Eve in the garden. And the garden is beautiful, but the thing that's most wonderful about the Garden of Eden is that God is there. And Adam and Eve can live with God. There's a river in, in, in the Garden of Eden. Not just a geographical detail, but rivers speak of life, don't they? Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Rivers speak of life. Or Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in John 4.10 uh, speaking of how the Messiah would give her living water. Running water, a river of water, life. Or in chapter 22 of Revelation, where the city of God appears, and what's in the center of the city? A river of life flowing from where? From the throne of God to all the people. The river speaks of life, of joy. And people living in communion with God, as it were, God is a river to his people. And this, all this is, is pictured in Eden. This wonderful condescension of God. God coming down to Adam and Eve. So do you get an idea of the kind of God we're talking about? 
The kind of God we have, that the Bible speaks of. Not an abstract deity, not a, a distant ogre. This is the, out of love and goodness, he comes down, he bends down to mere creatures like, like us. This is the God of love and grace who is willing to give himself unreservedly to his creatures. And this is set out for us right at the beginning of the Bible. This is the kind of God we have. And it's a theme that's all the way through the Bible. That God himself always takes the initiative in leaning down to his creatures and coming down to share with them the richness of himself. He wants to be their blessedness and reward. People, we can experience this wonderful communion with God. I wonder if you've ever thought about God like that. I hope this, this account of the Garden of Eden helps you to dispel any notion of, uh, of false ideas of God. To see him as the best, the most gracious God, the most kind God, the most loving God that human beings can possibly conceive of, can conceive of. And if you've ever felt that if there is a God and he is cold and distant and inaccessible, please think again. It may be that the God that you believe in, or the God that you're trying not to believe in if you're not a Christian, is nothing like this God. (laughs) The God of the Bible is inexhaustibly good and gracious bursting with life and vitality. He is willing to share his life with any who will turn their faces towards him. And if you have not already, will you not come and receive from him blessedness and reward? So it's a garden, the environment in which relationship is established. Let me move on to, I want to talk about the tree of life um, that's mentioned. It's only mentioned once, um, back in verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing else is actually said about it here, uh, other than its name and that it's present. It does come up again in chapter 3, and it does appear in other parts of the Bible. Um, Why is it here, though? Why is the tree of life mentioned? It's always, it's always good to ask these kind of questions. Why, why is that there? Why does the writer kind of just point that out and then move on? What are we to pay attention to here? And the first thing to say about it is, that, of course, it's a real tree. Uh, it's a tree. Uh, it, and it's right, I think, to say that it's, it's, probably, it's just an ordinary tree. There's nothing magical about the tree. Uh, it's not endued with certain magical powers or anything like that. Um, lots of people think that, and it's a mistake to think that. Um, they're just ordinary things in the garden, but they have significance because God gives them significance. And they point to something beyond themselves. This tree points to something beyond itself. And what does it point to? Well, as the name suggests, it points to life. Life. The tree of life. 
And it seems to be that this tree of life is being set apart as God, by God, as a, a representation of the life that goes, that goes even further beyond the life that Adam and Eve already are enjoying with God. Just think about it. Adam is, has all this garden to enjoy and fellowship with God. What could be better than what he already has? And yet, God says, Here, here's a tree. The tree of life. And he just points it out. There's a tree of life here. Just think about what that means. It's not special in itself. It just looks like all the other trees. But God says it's the tree of life. What does the tree say? It says there's more yet to come. Adam, Eve, whatever you're enjoying right now, there's more. There's more to come. If such a thing could be imagined. So it seems to me that the garden itself, though it's a place of great blessing to Adam and Eve, is not yet the final resting place of Adam and Eve. There is more beyond what they currently enjoy. Eden is good, but there's a future glory yet to come. Even better, the tree of life is to be a continual reminder that there's more to come. So you see how God's goodness, and dare I say his grace, is magnified to Adam and Eve? The tree of life, it keeps coming back in scripture. Um, Proverbs chapter 3 verse 8 says, Wisdom is is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called, uh, are called blessed. And it's reminding after the fall that maybe there's a way back to the tree of life. Through God's wisdom. Or in the New Testament, Christ, you know, Jesus, Christ's letter uh, to the Ephesian church in Revelation 2 verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In other words, eating from the tree is now held out to the church that that future glory and that rest that was denied to Adam because of his disobedience is now held out to the church through Christ. And then the final chapter of Revelation 22, the city of God from, uh, and God's throne from which flows this river of life. What's, what's either side of that river? A tree of life. The tree of life in the garden of God. The city of God. So what have we seen so far? We have a garden that God has made. And in it Adam is to have communion with God. As he works and keeps it. He's he's to do his work. And he's to take his rest like God takes his rest. He's given a wife to enjoy marriage. So all of these things are, are bound up in this wonderful uh, uh, circumstance and arrangement that God has made. Working, family, rest, communion with God. But then also there's a prospect of a better life yet to come in the tree of life. And the tree was to be a continual reminder. Every time Adam walks past it, he thinks there's more. There's more to come. So how can this better life be obtained? How can Adam get to it? How can Adam and Eve get to it? 
Which brings us to the third feature of this garden, uh, which is centered around this other tree. And now we're going to talk about the covenant of works. It's here that we see it, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we see most clearly a, a covenant established between God and Abraham. So like the tree of life, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is introduced in 2 verse 9, but more of it is said in verse 17. And I should say at this point, that if you've not already noticed, the word covenant doesn't enter into the text. Um, But you should understand that even if the name is not there, the thing itself is there. You know, giraffes were still giraffes before Adam called them a giraffe. You know, they're still giraffes, <laughs> if you get my idea. A covenant is there, even though it's not called a covenant yet. But it has all the elements of a covenant. First, there are two parties. There's God and Adam. So God gives us, uh, speaks to Adam in verse 16. And it's God who's making the covenant. Then there's a requirement or a command You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And no, it's only a small prohibition. It's one tree. There's all the other trees. There are millions of other trees in this garden. But it's just not to eat that one. (laughs) You can have so much else. So the blessing of God is here. Thirdly, there's a penalty. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death comes. So at that point, Adam is expecting to live and continue to live in this fellowship with God. But the day you eat of that, it's going to stop. And fourthly, the blessing promise. Um, the, The promise is not explicit. It's implicit that Adam will not die if he continues in perfect obedience. Indeed, As we have seen, the tree of life holds out the prospect of an even better eschatological life. And there is a last thing to note about this uh, this arrangement. That this covenant is with Adam, but it's not just for Adam. Adam later will fail to keep his side of the covenant. And he will incur the penalties. And Adam and Eve are going to be forced out of the garden. So if you look ahead to chapter 3, verse 24. uh, He, God, drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And that's the penalty that affects... It doesn't affect just Adam. It affects Eve as well. And all their children afterwards. So the failure of Adam has ramifications for the whole of humanity thereafter. So that everyone is affected by what Adam did. Because all people start out with Adam. And like Adam, no one is simply able to to fight their way back into the garden, back to the tree of life. Nobody can live, just brush themselves up and live a good life in the hope that they can get back into, towards the tree of life any longer. That's gone as far as his obedience is concerned. 
It's a way that is now closed for everyone. So here's the finish. Is there no hope for human beings? What are human beings going to do? How are human beings going to get back into fellowship with God and be saved and know eternal life once again? Is there any other way that God can provide? Well, there is. And to give an answer to that question, to answer that question is to anticipate what we're going to begin to look at next week. That there is another covenant. The covenant of grace. Not one that needs perfect, perpetual obedience on our part. Though it does require perfect obedience by someone on our behalf. And that the benefits of that someone can be attributed to us and be a blessing to us. So what you need for the other way is this. First of all, you need a new Adam. A second Adam. Or a last Adam. Is there such an Adam? Yes, of course. There's Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, he is indeed called the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45 And that's because he came, when he came... He was able to do all that the first Adam did not do and could not do. Jesus, the Son of God, became man and then proceeded to be fully obedient to his Father in heaven. And he did not fail like Adam did, the last Adam. And secondly, I think it's no accident that the two apostles... uh, Paul and Peter, Paul in Acts 13.29 and Peter in 1 Peter 2.24, they refer to the cross as the tree. So the cross becomes the tree. And there is a sense that while the cross is a tree of death to Jesus, it becomes for us a tree of life. A way to life. In other words, to sum up those two things, access to the tree of life that was put into the garden and then the way to it blocked, but then reappearing later in the Bible, that access was gained by the fully obedient Son of God, Jesus Christ, the last Adam. And so, through Jesus, that access was bought through his suffering and the shedding of his blood uh, in his death on the cross. We're going to go into that much more next week. But my friends, if the blessedness of the Garden of Eden is beautiful, displaying all the goodness and grace of God to his image bearers, how much more is this placing of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden as well? Because beyond, even beyond Eden, there is so much more to be had. So by all means, use the description of Eden to revel in the amazing goodness of God, but realize there's even more to come. And it comes through Jesus Christ. And God willing, we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your condescending goodness. 
Thank you for the amazing way in which you come graciously to human beings. That there was nothing that Adam could do to earn the blessing that he received. And Father, we thank you that nothing can take away from your goodness to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he opens up the way to the life, to the tree of life. And we pray that all of us in this room would know him. For Jesus' sake, amen.